Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to week 228 of Music is Not a Genre, or if you're listening on one of the podcast streaming services, this is season three, episode seven. Each week I take a release from my collection, I discuss it, I give you my take on it, I throw in some interesting tidbits, and I connect it to my music, other music, and other things in the world. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed, who's on my mailing list if you're not. Please send me something. I will add you to my mailing list. Uh, if you clicked and shared and anyone who's listening and watching, if you are a Patreon supporter as well, thank you to all of you for being a part of the family and a part of the conversation. Before I get into this week's uh, subject, which you see here before you, uh, unless you're just listening to me, in which case the suspense is killing you, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to make a quick announcement, which is that on my Patreon channel, uh, I am now amassing several interviews with uh, people in the music world, music lovers, uh, uh, music-related people of all different kinds. Uh, the first of which uh, is with uh, Catherine Lynn, a performer and creator. Uh, Stephanie Kay was the second one, and she uh, just released that one, and she is a podcaster, a sci-fi podcaster, music lover, singer. Um, and now the upcoming interview is a two-part interview with my father, the legendary Nicky DiMatteo. Uh, and I mean that. And if you don't know who he is, it's understandable, you're going to want to see this interview for sure. Uh, so I urge you, it's a perfect time to head over to Patreon and take a look at what I'm doing there and see what kind of exclusive awesome stuff is there, especially uh, right now. Uh, my new pet project, these interviews. Uh, so th that's my pitch. This week, the topic is Sweet Sounds of Power Pop. Why is Matthew Sweet not a superstar? Did you get the pun in there? Sweet Sounds? Yes. So one of the cool things about jumping finally out of vinyl into my CD collection is that it's going to start tackling some more contemporary music, contemporary artists. Uh, not because there aren't artists out there who, who still release vinyl, because I haven't bought vinyl in many, many decades. Um, now, listen, I haven't bought an actual CD in probably a decade either, or close to that. But what is represented in my CD collection uh, are, are artists... Uh, well, really from all decades, but the, there's a heavy representation of artists who have, uh, you know, been around and prominent in the last, let's say, 40 years, which sounds like a lot of time. But compared to what we had been 
you know, conversing about with vinyl uh, and to a great extent, even cassettes, um, this is this is contemporary. And even artists who've been around that long, many of them are actually still contemporary, still out, uh, out there uh, putting out music, including this week's artist, as I mentioned in the title, Matthew Sweet. So I'm going to start by being very honest about one thing. And as you can see, I have, I think it might be like 15 CDs here. So those of you just listening, there are 15 CDs here. Um, I won't be discussing each one at length, uh, but I will mention them and let you know what's going on and all of that stuff, give you kind of an overview. And the, 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 the truth is, he is one of my favorite artists. He has been since I discovered him in the early 90s uh, and is someone who has influenced my work tremendously in many different ways. So I have a natural bias, but my contention here is that biases like that are important because yeah, you have artists who were around for an album, a couple of albums. They, you know, they're kind of those unsung heroes. They made a small splash or maybe none at all, or they're independent artists and no one else knows about. And there are people who are fans of them who have, you know, who rightfully, you know, they, they are biased about those artists. And my contention with this is that there are also people who are biased about artists who have or have had long careers, long, extensive careers with tremendous output and, and touring and all of that stuff, who have established themselves as artists who know what they're doing in the type of music that they're doing and have done it really well. And these may be artists who were once wildly popular and who, you know, aren't that aren't as popular anymore. They're, you know, moments of fame. Or artists who never quite made it to the top, but were popular enough to be known. Or in some cases, artists that are completely still to this day unknown who've had extensive careers. Um, the, the bias here is important because it's based on, uh, it, it, it's for an artist who has been around performing, record, writing, recording, producing for almost 40 years. Uh, had, uh, if, you, if you know anything about Matthew Sweet, what you probably know is his uh, early and mid-90s output, maybe straight through close to the late 90s, let's say 90s, that covers all of the 90s, um, from his breakout hit Girlfriend on... Let's do it, since we're talking about it. On this album here, named the same thing, Girlfriend, uh, from, I believe, 91, uh, to, uh, you know, his other hits like Sick of Myself, Where You Get Love, um, I've Been Waiting, uh, uh, The Ugly Truth, uh, Evangeline was a minor hit, um, all, those, all those kind of, those 90s hits featured in movies and compilations and things like that on alt-rock stations and, and at some points on pop stations as well. So if you know him, that's where you know him from. Uh, I'm here to, of course, tell you a little bit more about him and help you to understand why I believe 
there is a bit of a, a systemic issue, let's say, in we're going to stick primarily with America because that's what, you know, I know the most and that you know, most of you are listening. Although if you're listening overseas, hello. Um, if you know English, that's pretty freaking awesome. And if not, hopefully this is translating for you. Uh, so let me say engine fork Poughkeepsie just to throw you off the scent a little bit. There you go. So Matthew Sweet started, like I said, in the early 80s. Uh, he uh, was from Lincoln, Nebraska, and he started putting out uh, music while he was still in high school there. Uh, there were, there were uh, a couple of things he did. And then he decided to, well, he went to college in uh, Athens, Georgia, at a time when Athens, Georgia had a kicking music scene. In the early 80s, that's where bands like R.E.M. and the B-52s are from and many others lesser known and, and other, you know, other solo artists who really established Athens as one of the hotbeds of indie music there, you know, there. Uh, I don't know if that's why he went to college there or if it was a coincidence, but either way, he actually did end up bumping into Michael Stipe of R.E.M. and they had a little band for a while uh, released a couple of singles right here on this. I put this at the top, not because it was released the earliest, but because it, it features his pre-solo artist recordings back when he was a total unknown and just getting started. It's a cool, if you're, if you're that into Matthew Sweet, it's a cool thing to get. But we'll talk more about the, you know, kind of the coolest ones here that if you're not into him, where to start. Uh, but anyway, the band was called Community Trolls. And he and Michael Stipe, uh, you know, were in it together before their respective careers took off. He also had a band called The Buzz of Delight. And then that CD that I showed all you viewers and uh, talked about here. So for listeners, this is called um, this is called me putting on my glasses because I didn't foresee having to read this. It's called the uh, To Understand. The early recordings of Matthew Sweet, of the Matthew Sweet, um, and those bands are featured on there. He then, uh, I think, got he, he got noticed and uh, signed by a record company, I believe it was A and M, and put out two solo albums in the eighties. Uh, this one here is called Inside. See how young that feller is, and this one here is called Earth. He's getting a little more broody there, isn't he? So um, they did not do that well. There were no real hit singles or anything there. Uh, they were, you know, workmanlike, and there's some pretty cool stuff on there. There was a song called um, Briar Rose, which was based on the fairy tale, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, some other things. But no, didn't do that well. Label dropped him. But he, of course, continued and worked with different producer and different musicians, kind of formed a new band and the whole thing. And that's when on the new, uh, I believe Zoo was the name of the label, he put out Matthew Sweet Girlfriend, which had, of course, the huge hit Girlfriend, but also the hit I've Been Waiting, uh, a slightly lesser hit uh, Divine Intervention, Evangeline. There, there were so uh, many amazing songs on this album. And the thing that struck me most about this when it came out, when I heard Girlfriend, it was at a time when most of the production for rock music was still stuck in the 90s. It still had a lot of reverb on every freaking instrument. 
drums especially, but even guitars and vocals and all of that. It was a wash. It was a wash, you know, in reverb. And, you know, that had its time. It's great. This came out. It had a really dry guitar. It had really dry vocals. It had really dry drums. And it immediately caught attention and just blew the, blew the roof off of popular rock music at the time and, and kind of, well, blew, the, blew out the old paradigm is a good way to put it, I think. So he had huge success with that. And he put out an album called um, Altered Beast, which had some cool hits on it as well. Uh, we're talking, um, well, The Ugly Truth was the big one. Time Capsule was one that's been played a whole hell of a lot too. And the critics were kind of like, oh man, you know, he was going in a direction and now he went in this direction. And it was a little more introspective and broody. He put out Son of a Beast, which was like uh, B-sides and other things like that. And didn't, you know, didn't love it, although it's, it's a fan favorite. I'll tell you that. It's not, it's not my favorite favorite, but I absolutely love it and respect it. And, you know, good for him for wanting to do whatever his muse was telling him to do and just, you know, kind of pump it out. And uh, but then he put out an album, which is probably my favorite. It's called 100 Percent Fun. Now, this is my favorite partly because it is the perfect representation of a kind of music I've talked about before called power pop, uh, which is, you know, pop music in structure, in hooks and in and, and all of that and melodies but done in a rock format with kind of a harder edge to it. He had a huge hit with the song uh, Sick of Myself. And then he had a slightly minor hit uh, with Giving It Back. Uh, Everything Changes is an awesome song. Um, not, when I, not When I Need It was, a pretty, was an awesome song. It was a kind of more minor hits. Um, and the other thing that's cool about this album, other than the production, the songwriting, and the, you know, the vocals and, and just how, how poppy and, and, and hooky and catchy it is, but still, again, in that kind of rock format with some, uh, you know, awesome keys and stuff, is that this cover, which I'll describe for people just listening, it is a picture of him as a kid listening to an album in a very brown 1970s uh, house, and he's got headphones on. And there is a video of me from when I was a little younger than him, although he's a little older than I am, sort that math out, uh, that is just eerily similar. Eerily similar. It's a black and white, though, video with no sound, because that's how things were mostly back then for us middle classers. And uh, it... it it's amazing the parallel there. And I think that's one of the things that drew me to the album. Um, I'm going to take a, a quick pause here in going through his catalog to really get to the heart of what I'm talking about and why it's important to me. And because I think it's the perfect time. This was his, this was his commercial peak, right? And he was an artist who again was working in the pop realm, but, but, in, but in a rock format, in the rock sound, and incorporated many things along with that, some awesome harmonies. Um, he did a lot of Beach Boysy kind of harmonies. He said some cool keyboard sounds and things like that. Very classic rock oriented, 1970s, smattering in 1960s. That's kind of where he sits and lives and a lot of what he does. Um, but it all comes out as, as, as just well-written songs, well-written pop songs with 
you know, substance and, and a personal take on things and all of that. And, uh, you know, very bright, kind of very accessible voice. And this is the whole presentation and the, the way things were produced uh, were just, uh, they're just very tight to this day, which I'll get to. And if you know me and if you know anything I've talked about or if, if you've uh, even seen the episode that's all about, you know, my catalog, you could you could understand why he's that important to me. You could pretty much apply everything I just said, almost everything, to me. You know, some of my influences are different and some of the ways I produce are different. But in terms of being able to write pop songs with substance, some of which are maybe not super happiest lyrics in the world, but which are always based in structure, pop structure and hooks and things like that, with an edge, with a rock edge, with, you know... Um, interesting production and keyboard sounds and stuff like that and harmonies, that's what I do, you know. Now, no, he wasn't the first or only influence, but what it, what it was was that I think this happens, this happens with the biggest superstars in the world, frankly, even, you know, not everybody, certainly. There are a lot of innovators out, innovators out there, but it's been said by many people that the Beatles showed them what, is possible, what could be possible in music, and started off careers from, you know, as eclectic as, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen to Black Sabbath. Um, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. You know, you're, you're always listening as a musician, and you hear something, and you say, oh, shit, I didn't know you could do that. I'm gonna give that a shot. And if it works for you, then it works, you know, and it, it expands what you can do. And he really kind of gave me in my young, young, you know, insecure inner voice permission to write the kind of songs that I wanted to write, that I had been writing, but wasn't maybe sure that that's the way it would go. And you can find in a lot of the work that I did uh, and have done really since then, that kind of feel, that influence. And again, that's why he's so important to me. Now, why, why does that apply to the subject this week? You know, yeah, I'm biased. I think he should be, this, at this point, kind of one of the elder statesmen that everybody knows and loves and respects. You know, the way, say, Iggy Pop is for punk or something like that. Um, or I don't, I don't, I don't know what I, I can't, I'm off the top of my, I can't think of anybody else right now, but it's that feeling of someone who's been around who may not be at their commercial peak, uh, but who everyone loves and knows and respects other besides just fans and core audience and stuff like that. I think that um, America in particular, sure, probably other parts of the world, but America in particular has always had a problem with gravitating towards bigness at the expense of everything else. Um, there was a time when artists would enter into what are called artist development deals and record companies would sign them and allow them to develop over a few albums until they hit their commercial creative peak, etc., etc. Some of those record companies maybe dropped them like a hot potato if things didn't work out or after things you know, worked out for a while and then didn't anymore commercially. Uh, but some stuck with them and they had long, you know, careers and uh, relationships with them. That died out very slowly in the 80s and 90s um, to the point where you at a certain point had to have an out of the gate hit to be paid attention to at, at all. Uh, Matthew Sweet caught a slight wave of the old, the old way 
but was also in his own way a victim of the new way. Uh, and in part because, as I said, he was dropped by his first label because his first two albums didn't have, you know, the kind of hits that, 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 that they needed, but then had his success. And yet that still wasn't enough for many reasons, for the record companies, for the people who market the music. And that's the biggest thing. Record companies and their partners who market the music do not give enough push. You've heard artists say this all the time. There are certain things that are either shelved or very just, in, you know, uh, anemically promoted to the point where people who would want to hear about them don't hear about them. People who may not know this artist or may have known and lost touch are missing out on new material that they would absolutely love. And the thing is, yeah, throw millions of dollars behind the artists that are going to sell that, you know, millions all the time. Sure, makes perfect business sense. But it also makes business sense to throw some money behind artists who are going to continue to sell some music because you don't know how wide that appeal is going to be until you get it out there, until you see what kind of legs it has and what kind of, you know, what broader appeal it might have. And so my contention is, had the music industry, uh, you know, been different, had, had a different attitude, had the PR, marketing and all of that, the people who would have wanted to hear more of his music would have heard more of his music beyond the biggest hits. And he would be considered more of a, you know, no, okay, maybe not the same longevity or impact of somebody like Bruce Springsteen, but that same idea of a singer-songwriter who just continues to put out good quality music, someone's going to, you know, who people are going to remember for the big times, you know, like Born in the USA and, and all of that, but still respect what they're doing now. And yeah, like I said, he's had his core artists but he's had to do a freaking GoFundMe campaign to put albums out. And I just find that to be ridiculous. You know, I find, and you may have your people who you love and you never understood, A, why they weren't bigger stars and B, why people don't know about them today. So maybe, hopefully you kind of understand where I'm coming from with this. Uh, not to mention, and it's important to state, that uh, it's kind of an inside music joke, but he's, he's big in Japan. And it, Tom Waits put out a song in the late 90s called Big in Japan. And he wasn't the first one to put out a song of that name. Alphaville did it in 84. And other artists have alluded to it or put it in music or just talked about it. But like I talked about in my Bee Gees episode, which if you're on Patreon, you've seen, um, they were blacklisted in America because of the whole, you know, kind of racist, homophobic disco backlash. And... Uh, didn't have the hits that they could have had in the States, but they continued to be really pretty freaking huge outside of the States, which shows, I think, not just an industry bias toward, oh, this is not hot anymore, I'm not even going to give it a try, which again, everything has a market, you know, so that's dumb. But, the, but also, I think, to some extent, a, a, a social bias, uh, not for everyone, because clearly we're here talking about uh, lesser-known artists, etc. But that there is sort of this malaise of a social bias in in America that either you have you know the music you like and you're sticking to it and that's it, or you're going to listen to whatever's popular because it's popular, you know. And it doesn't mean and again 
all that music it can be absolutely the best quality or you may love it and the important thing is it's great for you but my point is uh other other music other artists are being kind of thrown by the wayside by the industry attitude and by certain social attitudes and if there's one thing that i could provide other than information on stuff and a way to talk about this is to hopefully hopefully continue to stress how important it is to be able to open up and realize that there's way more out there than what is being blasted at you than what is being you know you know target marketed to you or through an algorithm or whatever it is or just through mass marketing and this you know and and uh, I would contend that Matthew Sweet is is one of those people and I don't mean just go back and discover an old artist you know many of the artists I talk about who were popular at a certain time just have still consistently put out music and and toured and all of that stuff including getting back to the subject Matthew Sweet. He put out another album in the 90s called Blue Sky on Mars which had a hit called Where You Get Love. It was very similar to 100% Fun and had a little bit more of um, a techno feel on top of the classic rock bed and the pop structure. A uh, very very strong album, but that was pretty much when his last bits of commercial success happened. And then 2000s hit and he put an album out called uh, In Reverse, which if you're watching, yes, actually, the album cover is supposed to be completely upside down. But I'm going to put it this way so you can read it in reverse. Some cool stuff there, more psychedelic. Uh, and then, like I said, Japan, he put out a, a Japan album here. It was released, I believe, only widely in Japan, although eventually, as you can see, you could get it in the States. you know. And then he put out another album shortly after that called Living Things. He, and then he decided to start doing some side projects, and he did um, uh, an album with a band that he put together with Sean Mullins and somebody else called The Thorns, which was very rootsy, uh, very, you know, uh, Americana rootsy with some good, cool pop harmonies, kind of the birds kind of feel. Um, I can't find that CD, so that's the one thing, the one of the ones I don't have. Uh, but then he also worked with Susanna Hoffs of the Bangles to do three full albums and then another bonus album of cover tunes, of their favorite cover tunes, including songs from, you know, like they did a cover of a Yes song. Uh, I've seen all good people, you know, if you know the song, imagine a duo, you know, great singers who know their way around harmonies. Uh, the, the Bangles are freaking awesome, and I've done a podcast on them. Um, putting together eclectic covers in their way. They, look this up, Under the Covers. Under the Covers, Volumes 1 through 3, they have a box set where they have a fourth CD of bonus material. Really, really worth getting. And then he put out another uh, solo album, Sunshine Lies. And then he put out, and that's the last CD I got of his because at that point I stopped buying CDs. But then he also put out, um, like I said, Under the Covers 2, uh, Modern Art was his next solo. Then Under the Covers 3 in 2013. And then he put out Tomorrow Forever and an accomplice there, uh, bonus uh, material, Tomorrow's Daughter. Kind of like Altered Beast and Son of a Beast. And then he put out Wicked System of Things in, I believe, 2018. And then he put out an album called Cat's Paw, which came out way back in the year 2021. 
like a couple of weeks ago, if you're watching this when I'm shortly after I recorded it, he just put out his 15th album, Cat's Paw, which kind of takes a lot of what he's done in the, in the interim between Girlfriend and Now and mixes it with the stuff he did with Girlfriend, Altered Beast, 100% Fun, Blue Sky on Mars. And it has that kind of tight, um, dry rock uh, sound with the pop structure and the pop melodies and the pop harmonies and, and arrangements and all of that. Um, with him doing solo guitar for the first time, which is a funny thing, somebody... You know, you never know what new thing an old artist is going to try to branch out and do or what they have been reluctant to do. So it's kind of cool to hear that. And introspective lyrics and fun lyrics and just like it's a very complete album. It's an artistically complete album and absolutely worth listening to. Um, one of my favorites is uh, Best of Me, but there are other songs on there that I think I, I like that predominantly for the lyrics um, and the melodies, his melodies are always great. His, he's just got such a bright voice in the way he sings. Uh, and th there are a couple of other songs on that album, though, that I like even better. I, you know, urge you. But the one album that I'm going to recommend that you go get, that I have unfortunately <laughs> buried here somewhere, is a compilation that incorporates all of his hits and some other additional material. It's called, um, what is it called? Uh, let me let me take a look at this real quick. It's called Time Capsule, based on one of his, the name of one of his songs. The Best of Matthew Sweet, 1990 to 2000. Sure, he put out music before then. Boom. Put out music after that. Boom. But 90 to 2000 is his sweet spot. <laughs> you know, if you, you know, watch Shit's Creek and like dad puns, you'll, you know why I said it that way. Um, and his commercial peak, uh, creative peak in some ways, but you know what? He's been creatively peaking for years, right? Uh, Matthew Sweet, Time Capsule, the best of Matthew Sweet, 1990 to 2000. It's the one I would recommend you go out and get. It's the one that if I am in a car and don't want to search on Spotify and feel like going old school and playing a CD, this is one of the CDs that I would take in the car. Is the kind that even if people I'm driving with don't know the music, they're going to get into it anyway. It's that kind of music, which again goes back to my original point. Why was he never a freaking superstar? And why is he not more well-known and respected? Uh, I hope I have convinced you of some of that. I don't know. Tell You tell me. I want to know. Do you agree with my assessment of Matthew Sweet? Do you know Matthew Sweet? Uh, do you Have you listened to some of him now? And do you think, yeah, he's okay. But do you think, oh my God, why don't more people know about him? Or do you completely hate him? Why do you, do, you know, why do you not think he is a superstar? Now, I know there are reasons why this happens. Why, the, you know, the Beatles and Sinatra and Elvis and Led Zeppelin and Prince and, you know, Michael Jackson and Nirvana and Mariah Carey and Cher and, you know, Dolly Parton. They're superstars for a reason. But the reason is not just music. And this is my point, right? Um, and, you know, why are bands like The Sparks these underground sensations who've been putting out albums for 50 freaking years and have influenced so many other artists and other kinds of music completely. Genres of music. Haha, <laughs> I said the word genre. Um, it makes sense that they're underground because of the kind of way they do their music is very eclectic. They, they only every once in a while went for a big hit and ended up getting fairly, you know, decent, you know, play for them, but mainly are just kind of doing what they do. Makes sense, right? There are other bands... I don't understand why 
they were popular for as long as they were. I know there's a reason. I know the reason that Nickelback was popular was because they did a very polished version of grunge music that had lyrics that were very accessible. I happen to not think that, you know, they necessarily, I don't know, you know, yeah, sure, they should have had the success they had. I'm just not a fan. Maybe that's what it is. I don't think that their music, you know, in the long run is going to hold up to other, you know, more... Uh, let's say, uh, organically grunge bands, you know, or Kid Rock. I don't even want to talk about him, but I'm mentioning him because, all right, you see why he had a success. You understand it. There are, there are logical explanations, but I'm saying, so what? I'm saying that in this, in this world, there should be different answers. And I'm one of these people who are here to try to create different answers for, you know, uh, exposing music that deserves more exposure in, you know, or an artist that deserves more recognition and respect. You know, like my music, my dad's music is actually does, they all, that all does very well overseas and has for a pretty long time. Um, everyone knows the Beatles knew though. If you make it in the States, then you've conquered the world because it's one of the hardest places, maybe the hardest place to find success. Uh, it's, it's something, these are all things we should all be aware of at the very least and consider and pay attention to so that we know, like I said, there's more out there than what we're being fed. Are there artists of yours who you think should be more popular? You don't understand why more people don't know them or artists who were popular, but they had other work and you're like, why don't people know more about their other work? They did such great work. I want to know what you think about all this. I, I, I want to keep this conversation going because I think it's super important. Uh, and because my objectives, as always, are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching and subscribing and clicking and sharing and reading and for supporting. And I'll talk to you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.